Jen. Here's a little riddle I wrote. No, okay. Here's a riddle for you, Jen. (laughs) I'm not good in locked rooms. This is an easy one. What is this stupid thing called? Honey Killer? Escape! Escape room. There we go. I'm not good at escape rooms. No, I would feel too much pressure. So, Okay, anyways. What is small, purple, started with a fur trader in Canada, eh? And revolutionized the way books were marketed and sold. I'm going to guess some guy named Harlequin because I already know the theme of the episode. <laughs> uh, close. His name actually wasn't Harlequin. I still like, don't entirely what? know where that name came from. Oh, come on. I know. I know. But good good Ugh. call. Good choice. Ding, ding. We have oh, a winner. Was something like Harlan Quinn? Did, no. he, did they steal like Harley Quinn's thing? No, actually. He's not even close to that. But anyways, these conveniently sized paperbacks are synonymous with romance. And through the evolution from British publishing imprint through World War II to modern wheelhouse, Harlequin has helped to set the modern romance scene during the 19th, 20th, and even the 21st centuries. Wow, it's a long time. Yeah. Insert dick length joke here. (laughs) (laughs) I have to get it out of the way. (laughs) I think we better insert some music instead. (laughs) Intro here. Blah, 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 blah. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's Let's rage! rage! Yes. I'm actually reading a romance in Braille right now. Okay. It's a touching story. (laughs) (laughs) It works on two levels. Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you very much. I love that. And thank you as always to you, dear listener, for tuning in and listening to us. We appreciate each and every single one of you. And we hope your 2023 is off to a riotous start. And thank you, as always, to Nopal for sponsoring this podcast. We appreciate you, too. Woo! And you guys, if you're in the area, should check out the Northern Onondaga Public Library. Mm-hmm. We're we on, got cool stuff. Yeah. We're Nopal. here. Nopal.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, but I think that kind of knocks all the small talk out of the way. There wasn't much small Do talk. Do we have any small talk? No. Yeah, I was going to say. And before we jump into this episode two, I just want to give Christina from Canada hey! a shout out. And hey, Harlequin started in Canada. What a cool coincidence. Such a beautiful coinky dink. Mm-hmm. Christina, thank you for emailing us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, at- can you guys tell this is a subtle hint? <laughs> Raging Romantics at Nopal.org. Really wants us to email. And also proof that we do listen to you guys. And yeah. since Christina was nice enough to send us a suggestion yes. here. Is your episode, Christina? We are talking about Harlequin Publishers. Woo! Yes. However, we are going to go back in time. We are not starting in 1949 with Harlequin when it first started. No, we are going back to the 1800s. Oh wow! Usually we don't go that far back. I know. Usually we start at the beginning, not like before the beginning. Let's start at the very. This isn't even a prequel. This is like background stuff. It's point one of the prequel origin story. It's like the Witcher series but for harlequin anyways okay to take that. i don't know I don't watch the Witcher. <laughs> today 
<laughs> Harlequin publishes over 1,200 authors from around the world with over 120 titles each month under its various imprints in over 107 international markets and 29 different languages. Last year alone, Harlequin sold 131 million wow. books worldwide, which equated to over 4.1 books per second. And in North America, approximately one in six mass market paperbacks sold is a Harlequin imprint. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. How many books get published a year is that a, a stupid lot. question it's gotta be in the billions it has to be so for it to be a hundred million especially considering just how popular romance is in general and for that even that bit of the pie yeah i'll wow. talk a little bit more about like numbers later on but i don't have total numbers i didn't really That's look okay. at that i mean because because there's so I, many different markets there's now a lot of different markets and i feel like publishers are a little careful about that stuff sometimes they don't yeah. always release the they want to keep it close to their sleeve yeah but it's just amazing to me that you Trust. know these little paperbacks paperbacks <laughs> that you get in the grocery store sometimes i mean i know they have expanded to like these bigger books but just thinking of the first time i ever read like the greek billionaire's forced virgin bride wife lady you know like <laughs> here it's 131 million books sold last year it's amazing and yeah not to be we're not being derogatory towards harlequin in any which way or mm -hmm. form because like even researching this episode i had so many flashbacks mm -hmm. to little baby jackie reading romance and yeah. jen what was your first experience reading a Harlequin romance oh, novel? God. Do you remember? I think it was either a book that was donated to my library that I stole. <laughs> yeah, one of the perks of librarianship is sometimes the, the books you donate, I, I just take. <laughs> I, <laughs> I can't admit that, can I? I should not admit that. You didn't that, say that. Or you know what? It might have been, too. My church used to have book sales. Maybe somebody like donated them and I took them there. I, I wish I remembered now, but I just... I have very vivid memories of like bags of those ridiculous Harlequins. Yes. Not like even like the normal plastic ones. Plastic shopping yeah. bags. And it would just be chock full, full of like, like yellowing paperbacks. These ridiculous ones too. Again, like I'm not exactly making fun of them, but if I'm going to make fun of any romance yeah. in the entire universe more it's than I have of Amish, it's going to be these Harlequins. And it's not even out of like a mean way. It's just, it, it's kind of like the ugly stepsister of romance. Yeah. You just like to make fun of them because yeah, they are the... The Spanish betrayed wife's revenge plan. You know, it's just like these long, insane titles of, uh, of like a, like a pipe dream. I don't yeah. know, like just insane. <laughs> and there are so many of them, and we will mm -hmm. touch on in a little while why they are so easy to make fun of. Besides yeah. the titles, but we do it lovingly. Yes, we do. Yes, because we are allowed to make fun of it. We have put our time in into the romance world. We can lovingly make fun of the time I read in a Harlequin. Uh, his soul was as dark as a coal miner's fingernails. <laughs> okay, yeah. It's stuff like that that I'm like, oh, God, I love it. But it's so bad. <laughs> My sister spent weekends at our house and weekdays at her dad's house so when she would go to her dad's house i would sneak into her room as was my right as a younger sister yeah, obviously. obviously and i would go through her stuff obviously and she used to hide harlequin books like behind her mm -hmm. mattress and i would take them and i would read them and it was i don't remember anything what it was mm -hmm. about but it was like a classic 80s harlequin and there was a blonde heroine on the cover mm -hmm. and i just remember reading and being like oh i love this i wonder who buys these because both of our memories are stolen books yeah that's true or books that were donated books that i you know found <coughs> <laughs> there is a certain subset of the population in my experience who today is still buying harlequin yeah. books and it is older mm -hmm. female readers and then we get these massive boxes full yeah. of harlequins to the library because they can't actually keep 
the ver- you know, their beloved Greek billionaires, whatever. I will say, I did have one male patron come into the library and he was looking he was reading because obviously these series get expansive yeah um and he was reading this one suspense series and i was like oh is this for your wife he's like no this is for me (laughs) i was like okay (laughs) and he was like on number 49 Mm. and he was collecting them too so if anybody has like pictures of a Mm. giant collection of harlequins that they own Show us. I would yeah, love I to see because it. it's just Where's so aesthetically pleasing to see all those nicely yeah. even and good color paperbacks together. It's just so aesthetically pleasing. I am one of those people who I have to organize my library by author. That would be the only <laughs> exception if they number it. Like yes. That. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But um, yeah, let's move on because this this ramble went on a little longer than well, I thought it I would. I think it does speak to how embedded yes kind of harlequins are an idea are like i feel like for a lot of people that's kind of how you accidentally start in romance yeah i started probably in a way you could argue i should or shouldn't have i'm you're not my mother i'm not gonna have that discussion <laughs> with you but i think for a lot of people it is kind of like yeah we find this in a bookstore we find this at like a book sale and there's something about it that kind of draws you in there i don't know what it is Maybe because it is so over the top and ridiculous. And like, yeah, even as a child reading this, I'm like, oh, this is not how love and marriage works. What's the term pervasive? They're pervasive. And to understand how such an innocuous little book came to represent such a pervasive powerhouse. Let's take it back to the onset of modern publishing, shall we? And this is a total bookception because we are a library podcast that talks about books. That's Mm -hmm. talking about how books are made. I love it. It's great. <laughs> and also, this is actually me using my first master's degree. So, <laughs> woo. Okay. For student debt is finally useful. <laughs> you Cries. You used it. Cries and student loans. Okay. For a deeper look at the history of romance publishing, you can go back to our History of the Romance Genre episode from way back in the days. It's number 25, and it will be linked in the show notes for you. But to sum it up all as quickly as I can, for the vast majority of written history, creating a written record was a big production. In the era of scrolls, paper had to be manually pounded, cured, and prepared by artisans in a lengthy, rigorous process. In medieval Europe, which I will cover at some point, perhaps soon, bookmaking largely involved parchment made from animal skins and was a costly affair that, again, required skilled laborers from a variety of industries like the farmers who raised and slaughtered the animals and the monks in a scriptorium who would prepare and create the parchment bindings and books and even complete the gorgeous scriptwork and lengthy writing process even with the invention of the european printing press in 1436 the process still took a good amount of time it wasn't until the industrial revolution of the mid to late 18th century that we would begin to see the inklings of the modern publishing process industrialism dramatically raised output and lowered costs costs across the board inventions like stereotyping the iron press application of steam power mechanical typecasting and typesetting and new methods of reproduction helped to revolutionize the book industry for instance paper previously made by hand counted for more than 20 percent of the cost of a book in 1740 by 1910 that cost had fallen to a little more than seven percent bindings also became less expensive as after 1820 cloth cases began to be used in place of that expensive leather It was the invention of the linotype machine in 1886 that can arguably be said to be the true turning point in book industrialism. The linotype was invented in Baltimore by German immigrant Ottmar Mergenthaler. Mergenthaler. Mergenthaler? And not only sped up the process of typesetting and printing, but also created consistency between printers, meaning we start to see regularized typesets, faces, and layouts appear to an even further degree than they had since the printing press. 
The linotype was a hot metal typesetting system that cast blocks of metal type for individual use. Where before the previous industry standard used the common typesetting of a manual, of manual letter by letter setting, which used a composing stick and a shallow subdivided tray called a case, linotype produced an entire line of metal type all at once, hence the name linotype, line of type. To work, a linotype machine operator enters text on a 90-character keyboard. The machine assembles matrices, which are molds for the letters form, automatically and in a line. The assembled line is then cast as a single piece, called a slug, for molten-type metal in a process known as hot metal typesetting. Thus, the word romance, for instance, is assembled from matrices of the individual letters. Those letters are then molded and cast into a single slug, so you have a slug that says romance on it. Also, too, an entire line of print is created out of a slug. So the sentence, hey there, romance nerds, would be cast into an entire slug of its own right. This slug, in, th in turn, is then used to cast directly onto the paper. That means that for one page of a book, which has an average of about 25 lines, once you have those lines prepared, you can infinitely cast all those slugs onto the page without having to reset everything every single time. You can also reuse slugs and create slugs of individual words, like buzzwords, like the... I don't know, thought oh. <laughs> or of, mm -hmm. you know, those fun things. He, she, they, um, cookie, <laughs> cookie, shoe, important in my life, book, dress, <laughs> water. Anyways, you get it. <laughs> Linotypes were mostly revolutionized for the, uh, for the newspaper industry. As I'm sure you can imagine, it made that work much easier with the daily printings that were required. But it also, without a doubt, helped the book publishing industry as well, as publishers were now able to create even more copies of books for a fraction of the cost. Where before it would have taken six laborers hours to cast even one page, now a whole book could be cast in a single day. And if I retained anything from AP Economics in high school, which admittedly was not much, uh, supply equals demand and vice versa. The books that were being printed in demand were in demand, and so they were able to feed more demand and a larger growing education base, at least in Europe and America. Because during this time, education reform in these places meant that a wider subset of the population was being educated. And even if they weren't doing calculus, a wide set of these people were now able to read at least to a fifth grade level. Newspaper and novel readership greatly increased, which we can see evidence of in the ads that were placed in goods and services that were being marketed. Go listen to Jen's personal ads episode. Woo! Hey! It was fun! Yeah! In Europe and America, expansion and competition was the essence of the 19th and 20th centuries, and the print trade had a full share of both. While the population of Europe doubled, that of the United States increased 15-fold. Western expansion, a growing readership with a higher education level, and improved means of communication led to wider distribution and a thirst for self-improvement and entertainment. Beyond newspapers, these developments also led to a rapid growth in every category of book, which, thanks to industrialism, we now know were able to be mass-produced. Again, we're going back to the idea of wider education equals wider demand for content equals wider spread, supply equals demand. The cost of these books really also started going down as the cost of production decreased and as readership grew, meaning that the cheaper the publisher made something, the more copies they could get out, the greater their return on investment. And we all know capitalism is all about that ROI. Now, if you recall from our History of Romance episode, really the thing that suffered the most during this period of innovation and industrialism was the design and equality and quality of printed materials. And this is me purely being a snob, okay? All of those beautiful old manuscripts and books you see in archives and museums with their leather-brown covers, gold leaf, and beautiful handwritten script were left behind in favor of capitalism. Instead, you get cloth-bound books with acid-filled paper that just kind of dissolve and turn yellow over time. And of course, we start getting glue-bound paperbacks, which are the cheapest to manufacture on a large scale and which happen to be form and format of the infamous Harlequin novel. They aren't made to last, but they're made to be read. 
An exemplar of this period of book, to, book production that would lead us right into the arms of Harlequin is the American Dime Store novel. These were the these were first published in the United States from the end of the Civil War as weekly or monthly installments at first in newspapers. Technically, they were some of the first serials ever produced, and they focused on topics of romance, adventure, and American idealism. In England and parts of the Eastern Seaboard, they were referred to as penny dreadfuls because of the cheap price, which was often only a penny. In the States, they got the nomenclature of dime novels because, you guessed it, they cost a dime. Publishers geared the book towards the undereducated lower classes, producing stories with simple, formulaic plots that would open new worlds to their readers. Storylines were straightforward. There were no mind games, no psychoanalysis, only simple storytelling. Victor Hugo, they were not. For the less avid reader, story papers were published with abridged, brightly illustrated versions of dime novel-like stories. Most often, they were about eight pages in length and serialized weekly in magazines or booklets and would eventually give way to story collections like Reader's Digest. And because of this format and the directed readership, romance became synonymous with this format. Women's dime novels typically dealt with romance and marriage, drawing on the social experience of the readers. Stories often set up a love between a working-class girl and a noble and sometimes told of marriages and betrothals gone awry. Often, these romantic ventures would end in disaster, warning the working-class women that the emerging concept of acceptable female sexuality was, in fact, unacceptable. In these stories, virtue was protected at all costs, and its importance emphasized for the sake of the readers. And it was during the early 20th century that the preeminent publisher in romance fiction first stepped out of the shadows. Jen, any thoughts as to who it could be? Oh, the person we're talking about. Nope. Oh. <laughs> then I guess I don't know. I set you up for it. I'm sorry. It's Mills and Boone. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Because, yes, Harlequin would be nothing without Mills and Boone. Mm. Mills and Boone now is an imprint of the contemporary Harlequin Publishing House, which is itself an imprint of Parker Collins, but we'll get there. Mills and Boone was founded as its own company in London in 1908 by Gerald Mills and Charles Boone. They did publish more widely than romance at the beginning, with educational textbooks, socialist tracts, Shakespeare-published travel guides, children's and craft books, as well as a variety of fiction. They even published White Fang and Call of the Wild by Jack London, The Phantom of the Opera wow. by Gaston Leroux, um, before they became to be known for their romance novels. However, with the 1920s and the looming depression, the company struggled to keep up with bigger, more international publishing houses. And they noticed a lot of their readership turning towards classically escapist novels as the 1930s rage on. They Hey, rage done! Hey! Hey! <laughs> you should take a shot every time we say it. Anyways, um, of water. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't drink. <laughs> no. T I'm take not the... Eat a cookie. Eat a cookie that every time. That I would do, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. I can get sugar high. Mills and Boone especially came to the realization that their best-selling novels were largely penned by female authors and bought by women and, you guessed it, featured romance so plot lines. were they happy about that when they realized? Yeah. Was it one of those things? Or, or it was like, like a happy discovery of, right. hey, we can make money off of this and people want to read oh, it. Oh, God. It wasn't like a Marvel movie where they're like, oh, we have too many female fans. we got to change some stuff. No, okay. no. They were like, hey, women want to read. Let's give them what they want. Okay. It was good. It was good. All right. Good for them, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, their first book they ever contracted in 1908 was Arrows from the Dark, a romance novel by Sophie Cole. It would take them 20 years to catch up with that romance. It was a big hit, though. Hmm. Miller, one of the original founders, Mills and Boone, died in 1928, and Boone brought in more creative minds to help lead the company into its next iteration as the Depression kicked into gear. 
With the global effects of the American Depression being felt, the economic downturn works its way into the book industry through the 30s. Cheaper books, and indeed the popularity of commercial libraries, grew exponentially. This need for escapism among readers was again noted by publishers, Mills and Boone included, who also saw the correlation to housewives and women, quote, stuck at home with the families. Boone and his new team helped to create the firm's stylized romances by selecting established female writers already published in magazines like Women's Weekly to write for Mills and Boone. The 1930s, though they were financially difficult, can be seen to be Mills and Boone's golden era. With modern printing and marketing schemes, they would become a powerhouse on the British scene. I really like this quote from Boone that says, They were still promoting hardbacks in the way they had promoted John Walpole in 1915, like the precious life of a master. We started doing the list in a block. We published fortnightly. We produced catalogs to tie in with that. Ladies could pester libraries. <laughs> you know what? We still do pester libraries, and now we work in the libraries. Hey. Hey. The war years, though, were tough on the publisher, with paper rationing limiting print range and the size of books through 1949. Plus, founder Charles Boone also died in 1943. Mills and Boone would continue to persist, changing some of their marketing, ta- marketing tactics as libraries also faced difficulties, and they began marketing a direct mail catalog option. And do you remember the Harlequin books that would come and they would have little tear-out things oh, yeah. in the middle? That was like a major flashback for me. I completely mm. forgot about that. Yeah, those they were in old paperbacks. Too, yeah, like any kind of the mass pu- mass produced thing. Yeah, and I used that to was use a, them as bookmarks. Yeah, that was a Mills and Boone thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, pretty cool, huh? Um, anywho, Mills and Boone began hooking up with other publishing places too, including Women's Weekly for serial pr- publications, and in 1957, Harlequin. Harlequin Enterprise LTD was founded in 1949 in Winnipeg, Canada by Richard and Mary Bonnycastle and quickly cornered the market on North American romance. What's especially fun is that Dick Bonnycastle, yes, his name was Dick, um, had been a fur (laughs) trader with the Hudson Bay Company and spent several years crisscrossing. I know, I had too much of a giggle at that. Sorry, I'll stop. (laughs) It's okay. He spent several years crisscrossing the frozen Canadian backcountry prior to settling down. When being a fur trader no longer proved as lucrative and probably was really cold, he settled down to creating a printing company. Urban legend has it that one day he read one of his wife's favorite books, a little romantic paperback from a certain British publishing company, and thought to himself, hmm, this could be a great business to get in on. So, along with a plethora of other titles like medical and textbooks, in 1957 Harlequin proposed a partnership and they began to reprint some of these British romances, with Mills and Boone's permission, of course. In 1958, the Canadians reprinted 16 Mills and Boone novels, the next year 34, and from there it just kind of took off. I'm never going to be able to get over that Dick Bonnycastle is basically like a parody, a satire of one of those ridiculous Harlequins that he would come to publish in like the 2000s. He really is. And his wife is even more so of like a... She would be a book character. Like that would be like the English lord and the mm-hmm. saucy serving mm-hmm. slave girl. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be the title that Dick Bonnie Castle would belong to. Yep. I'm sorry. I know that's not the point. That was like <laughs> several sentences ago, but I'm still just like, how? You're stuck on it. You know, sometimes I think, like, does your name make your destiny? And I feel like that's one of these instances where he was just always meant to do this with the name Dick Bonnie. Like, if he had been, like, <laughs> a normal Andrew Smith, he would have been, like, some boring guy who sold, like, railroad tracks or something. <laughs> and instead, Dick Bonnie Castle is selling these little Harlequins. I'm sorry! I will stop! But I'm just like, oh my god! <laughs> I blew your mind with that one, didn't I? 
She's speechless, folks. I'm gonna stop. I'm sorry. I will stop. I'll just let wait you till on. you get to the son's name. <laughs> Anyways. On a, on a sad note, Mills and Boone, by this point in 1958, was struggling. Their operation with commercial lending libraries had declined, and they were still feeling the effects of the post-war years in rationing. So when the Canadian printer offered to help them break into the North American outlet, of course they br- took up that opportunity. What did they have to lose? The 1960s saw for Harlequin the development of their brand. With Mary Bonnycastle st- at the copy-editing helm, their romances took on a very particular flavor. The category romance. In other words, there was no sex in this. Aw, Mary. Yeah. yeah. With the name Mary Bonnie Castle, she should be like the boxum serving girl. No, no. She had her thumb. Come on. She, she had her thumb and she was like, no sex. <sighs> because according to her, Blame. the mid-century Harlequin heroine is never vulgar or flashy. Oh, come on. And is always fun. wholly virginal. I won't say anything about the virginal thing, but flashy is fun. She's usually aged around, that's also hard to say, she's usually aged. <laughs> there we go. Around 19 and generally must work. Like where? Like just in general? So they like actually really started feature. with medical um, mm-hmm. So, like, being a nurse. Okay. Um, and I actually was just about to say that. Because <laughs> Harlequin and Mills and Boone really cornered the market on medical romances during this time. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the types of careers women had available to them in the yeah. late 1950s and 60s, nursing and secretarial secretarial work were the two most common out-of-home yeah. careers, right? So, it's like you didn't want a lady of leisure yeah. heroine. No. Is what she means by work. Yeah. I didn't dive into the psychology of that. That's okay. I just, that's what (laughs) stuck out at me when you said that. I'm like, wow, that's like very specific. Like a 19 year old worker. Which I mean, if we look back at your your dating episode. I mean, it fits perfectly. Yeah. It's all connected. I know. Cue like the mad Charlie theme with the red lines of, (laughs) it's all connected. (laughs) Furthermore, the heroine does not happen to things. Things happen to her. Well, we know that from Flame and the Flower. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Generally, she encounters a wealthy man whose mood she cannot read. Why is that attractive? Whose motives remain mysterious oh, until no. the last few pages when it's revealed that he's been desperately in love with her this, this is- entire time and they must marry immediately. The books are typically less than 200 pages and the romance is generally established with tension no later than page 60. These are quick, like, two-hour reads here. Further, the category romance is defined as different lines of romances, where editors of each line have specific guidelines for aspiring writers. Each book must deliver on its promises about the level of sensuality, the preferred sort of settings, the overall emotional tenor, whether it's angsty or lighthearted, etc. They're formulate compared to single title romances, but that doesn't mean they're identical. And in fact, they can vary wildly. For instance, Harlequin Blaze, we recognize by the Blaze insignia on the red covers, and tends to be on the spicier end, for Harlequin at least. Meanwhile, Harlequin and Spire, we can immediately recognize as the more sweet, devotional line of romances, which often features the Anabaptist elevator that Jen explains so well. They just love it so much in all of those Christian romances. They really do. Like, nobody stays at the bottom of the elevator. Yeah. yeah. You always go up. And then they get to Blaze, and they're like, whoop, need something after that. <laughs> I don't think they quite make it to Blaze. Harlequin really pioneered this category romance and remains one of the best publishers of categories to this day. I mean, we said it before, Harlequin publishes so much, and they're all across the board, and there's so many different color spines. It can be hard to keep track of. But let's get back to sex. Now, Mills and Boone, interestingly enough, had come to be known for the intimacy of its books. Not on-page sex, necessarily, but certainly more than longing glances over a butter churn. Or, you know, typewriter. But Mary Bonnycastle, the good old staunch Canadian she was, what a disappointment. hello, New World Puritanism, Mary. simply would not have it. It, 
of course, being sex. So much to the point that the British publishers would send guidelines to their authors of what they should write and how they should write it to help get things past Ugh, the stalwart Mary. What a killjoy. For instance. What a waste of a great last name. And I quote, oh they require a fairly straightforward love story with heroine and hero dominating the story and without an excess of back chat between subsidiary characters, which above all can be read by young Canadian girls in their teens without any words or incidents occurring, which might be considered to strike a jarring note. Oh, come on. Please do not think that we are suggesting that young girls in their teens cannot read the NS. I don't know what NS stands for um, books, but I am sure. For example, the very mention of the word abortion would worry our Canadian associates from the point of view of what they feel their teenage girls should read. There should be no situations of girls in love with married men. No seduction, no violence, no mystery. like, what am I supposed to read? You know, it was still profitable, though. (laughs) No, actually, I mean, I joke, but a lot of this stuff is kind of still true, I think. Not all of it. Like, I think definitely, like, this jarring thing is, like... Okay, that's only if you're like a monster. It is interesting too that they point to like young girls and teenage girls reading this, and you're Mm -hmm. like, yeah, there wasn't really a young adult genre at this point. It's funny because now today it would be considered like, no, you don't let teens and Jen and Jackie (laughs) at a young age read romance. (laughs) And yet here we are running a podcast, so I think we did okay. And you know, with the 70s and the new wave feminism rolling in, things were about to take a major turn. That's true. But first, it's time to hear from our sponsors. Our sponsors. The books we read. Hey. hey! Jen, what are you reading right now? So I just finished the other day, How to Keep House While Drowning, A Gentle Approach to Cleaning and Organizing by K.C. Davis. Oh, okay. I am not a great cleaner or organizer or somebody who <laughs> really likes to do much of anything with my house. It's constantly a struggle. And I have read all of the cleaning books and I've read like the Marie Kondos and the, I don't know, there, there's a ton of my Goodreads. This one, though, was really... Like, I immediately bought it after I finished this one. It was great. I immediately got up and cleaned. It Like it says in the title, it's a very gentle way to approach cleaning and organizing that I think deals more with the shame uh, for certain people who who have that. Mm. I'm trying not to call myself out too much. This is not my therapy session. (laughs) But it was just, like, really nice. I will say it's not for everybody. There's definitely a lot of people in the reviews that are just like, God, you people suck. You're so sensitive. Um, Oh, no. You know, like, just get – it's, like, very much the opposite of that usual, like, suck it up and get on with it kind of talk. So, for me, this was something that really uh, spoke to me, literally. Like, that's why I bought the book, and that's why I actually went on to go and clean my kitchen. And (gasps) we'll see how long that lasts. So, yes, so for the next week – proud of you. Thank you. For the next week, I will be very uh, cleaning – and then I will probably, like, lose all motivation again. But the important thing is you do as much as you can while you have the motivation. There you so go. I'm gonna I like it. Run like the wind. I like it. Do you want me to, like, hand you the book again in two months' time so you get inspired all over well, again? Well, like I said, I bought it. Because, yeah. actually, I'm reading it. And I'm like, God, I really actually want to highlight this. Oh, good. And I never <gasps> do that to my books. books. I know. I never do that to my books. I am that person that will, like, have. Yeah. Like, Literally. When I, I borrow a book from her, she refuses to let me bend this. She's like, don't yeah, put a don't crease in the spine. The spine. And so I, like, creases. barely crack exactly. open. <laughs> so and then actually too you should really have like a napkin or something between the, your fingers and the book so you don't get fingerprints on it and then you should unfold the pages down and you should be very careful with it so it still looks as new as possible but Back here's to the this cleaning book, book. <laughs> yeah here's this book i just want to highlight a bunch of the statements That's so if awesome. you are like me if you are not like a cool self-motivated person if you're more me who like cries when it's time to mow the grass i would definitely recommend <laughs> how confirm. to keep house while drowning it's very short, too, which was great. It's only 156 pages, roughly. Oh, that's awesome. And, like, she breaks it down into very small chapters. And even then, she's got shortcuts. So if it's just, like, if you don't want to deal with any of the weird 
uh, psychological stuff right now. Here's like just literally a game plan to get going. Oh, I like that. Mm-hmm. That's good. Maybe I should order. There you go. Hey, check it out. We have it here at the library. <gasps> awesome. I will say it is a little expensive at the moment, um, which is weird because it only just came out last year. You'd think it would go down. Oh. But it is available on Amazon Thrift Books. Okay. Uh, definitely get it from the library, though, because yes. we are librarians. Yes. Uh, best thing to do with a book is you try it from the library, and if you really like it, return it, and you can buy it. Exactly. There you go. So what did you read, Jackie? I just finished um, Temple of No God by H.M. Long, which is book two in the Hall of Smoke series, and I am about to start book three, and it is... The perfect, in my mind, Viking fantasy book. Wow, okay. It is, it is pure fantasy. It's not mm-hmm. set in a real world at all, but it has badass warrior priestesses who wield axes oh, and kill gods. Mm. It's awesome. So book one um, and book two have the same main character whose name is Hessa, and she is the badass warrior priestess in question. Um, and I can't say anything about what happens in book two because it's a spoiler for book one. But basically, if you can imagine, it's a reimagining of the Viking and Roman interactions Mm. and Christianity versus paganism and North versus South. And it's just like, I have never read action scenes like this in a book. Okay. Like, I felt like I was watching a movie Mm. and it was just breathtaking. And I gasped. I cried. I went, oh, my God. Mm. So, yeah. Temple of No God by H.M. Long. Um, book one is Hall of Smoke. Book two is Temple of No God. Book three is Barrow of Winter. And that one just came out February 7th. Do you realize, too, you owe me a quarter? False. <laughs> Shiitake <laughs> mushrooms. I love this book. It's just for that. Oh, it's it, been a while I, since I owed you a quarter. I know. Can I give you, too, just like a one sentence yeah. thing you're proud of? It? I actually found a fantasy book I like. <gasps> what is it? Yeah, so I read The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy. Which actually was oh, surprisingly yes. good. I will say I did skim some of the the world building stuff because I just hate that stuff. I get like <laughs> I don't care. I, all I need to know is that there's zombie like creatures. I don't need all the the soul backstory. I've been whatever. hearing a lot about that lately. I was surprised. I if you guys give it a try, absolutely give it a try, please. But if you're like me, you might have to kind of push through the first couple of pages until you kind of get to the relationship part mm. and the part where it's like, oh, this is kind of like a weird fantasy version of You've Got Mail. Oh, okay. Very good. Definitely. And you say there are letters. zombies in it. It's zombie-ish. They call them drugs. Oh, okay. Drugs. And it's just like a very interesting, fascinating world that's kind of fantasy, kind of Western, kind of apocalyptic. All this stuff with old gods and souls. Oh. So finally, yeah, like I'm gonna count it as a fantasy. Maybe yes, not like the totally kind of high a fantasy. fantasy. I will call it, call it. Um, and especially, I've never read a romance where she was a female undertaker. Oh, that's cool. Which was especially undertaking amazing. of heart. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, because the idea is like he brings the zombie, the drugs to her to like, you know, for her to respectively bury yeah. after. Because and I feel like that's something they always miss in these apocalyptic books of like oh, we kill the zombies and we just leave them there to rot. Yeah. But no, they actually do. It's like a whole part of their mythology and religion where you bring oh. them and they like go on a ship to the old gods and the salt. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I Like cool. that stuff I did not care about. But it was just <laughs> nice to yeah, like, like. Oh, cool. And you're like, I don't care. <laughs> that part, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's enough to me that, okay, that's a job she really appreciates and loves. And it was an interesting thing too to have read after I just read um, Smoke, It's In Your Eyes, which is that uh, memoir about the woman who works in the crematorium. Yeah. So it was kind of like, it's to me, with my limited knowledge, it felt very applicable and realistic, oh. even set in a, a world with, like, zombie-ish people. Oh, cool. So, there you go. There was, I yeah. meant that for that to be a sentence, because I just okay. wanted Jackie to be proud of I'm me. I'm proud of you. For reading a fantasy. All right. So, there we go. But now, let's get back to the show. The next 10 years were absolutely pivotal, not only to Harlequin, but also to romance as a whole. Because when Richard Bonnie Castle, Dick Sr., died in 1968... 
his son, Dickie Jr. Dickie Jr. took over the helm. Are you kidding me? Dickie. Dickie Jr. Dickie Jr. I love the 60s and their names. Dickie Bonkers. Their nicknames. So now this has become like a very weird frat story. <laughs> oh, it's about to get even more oh fratty. God. Okay. Like not the good kind of college romance I like. No, this one we like. Oh, okay. Dickie's yeah, we like good... this one. Okay. He's chill. He's a All cool right. dude. Even though Dickie, God, poor guy. I know. <sighs> hey, listen, 2023 and, and bits, right? I'm sure at the time it wasn't as weird. <laughs> um, but yeah, Dickie Jr. took over the helm and ended up moving Harlequin to Toronto. He hired Larry Heisey and acquired in full Mills and Boone. In 1971, Harlequin had their largest sales year ever with a profit of $7.9 million, which today's money translates to $53,252,437.04. This ushered in, no doubt, the golden age of Harlequin and the start of what I like to think of the powerhouse of modern romance. Mm. Because at the same time Harlequin was dominating the scene, bodice rippers fully stepped in with Jen's favorite book, The Flame and the Flower. Oh, not favorite. Favorite, <laughs> favorite book to hate. Yeah. yeah. I won't talk about it here, but just realize that at the same time Harlequin was having a, spoiler, sexual revolution in drugstores and grocery stores and tampon boxes, and yes, I said tampons, so too was genre romance as a whole also going through a change. And Fabio. Fabio happened hey, at this time, Fabio. too. Hey, Fabio. I know I typed that sentence, and I looked back at our cardboard cutout. I was like, Aww. hey, Fabio, it's you. <laughs> so, first and foremost, Larry. William Lawrence Larry Heisey was the other member of Harlequin Frat. He had formerly served from for 13 years in Procter & Gamble and then from 1967 to 1971 as the executive vice president in sales for Standard Broadcasting um, before he was hired as president of Harlequin Enterprises LTD in 1971. A quote-unquote marketing genius, Heisey took Harlequin into the places he knew best retail he tried things that no one had thought of before because why the heck not and see what worked was his unofficial motto i like to think some marketing strategies he employed include a complete romance published in good housekeeping that was followed by a coupon the reader could send in to receive a free harlequin a romance packed in a large size box of kotex feminine napkins and tampons and bioad detergent romances given away to customers at mcdonald's restaurants on mother's day romances given away with purchases of Avon products and Jergens lotion and a free romance given in exchange for a coupon found at the bottom of Ajax cans. In addition, Larry put Harlequin in drugstore aisles, grocery store checkout lanes, malls, magazines, and he helped strengthen Harlequin's new direct to customer reader service where subscribers got a bundle of the month's new releases sent straight to their home. Do you think any of that stuff would still work today? I was thinking about this, and I think with ebooks, we are we're going to talk about this at the end. Oh. But as like a little spoiler, I think with ebooks, it wouldn't. Mm. I think if we, I don't know, we can talk about it in okay. a bit. But I, I don't think it would. But I think for the time, for the '60s, the '70s, going into the '80s, this was revolutionary. No, I'm not saying it's not revolutionary. Yeah. I'm just trying to picture McDonald's handing out like a Crisly Cola with the Happy Meal. <laughs> Maybe if they gave away like a free Kindle book coupon. Mm. Yeah. Mm capitalism amazon further since harlequin was now out from under the rather strict thumb of mary bonnie castle they were able to start selling <gasps> sex during this time while not becoming straight up spice harlequin does start publishing riskier titles with actual sex on the page and be ready pearl clutchers orgasms i know Ooh. shocking i laugh but in reality this was groundbreaking for american commercial romance of course i mentioned the bodice rippers that were already starting to do brisk business with harlequin's competitors but heisey and bonnie castle took a chance and ex included more explicit scenes in four new stories to start with 
Heise then, in a marketing ploy that I still think is genius, published 400 copies of each of these four new stories and sent them to a random selection of North American readers. To no modern reader's surprise, these readers were strongly in favor of the new style with more sexual relations between the hero and heroine, and Harlequin went full steam ahead, or should I say, full spice ahead. (laughs) Much to Bills and Boone's relief. Because their authors had been trying to get these stories in for years, but under the decency codes of the original Harlequin, they were struggling. Now, these marketing strategies were good and bad because Harlequin fully understood his market and what they wanted. Their lead customers were women readers and frequently they were housewives. And by marketing through avenues that where these housewives could have easy access to their books, Harlequin was able to chase a woman's dollar without embarrassment or apology. They were so successful, in fact, that sales jumped 30 million books in two years, hitting 72 million sales in 1975. And reports state that by the mid-1970s, the company printed 450,000 copies of every single book. Wow. That's almost half a million copies of every single book they published. Madness. However... This would also create a lasting reputation that Jen hit on the nose at the start of the episode for romance that still plagues us to this day. That of romance, quote, packaged and sold so nakedly like a TV dinner. Mm. And not to mention associated with a class of people who are viewed as not as intelligent as real literary critics, a.k.a. housewives, which we know is vastly incorrect and severely shortchanges the housewife. Okay, they could get blood out of a white tablecloth. Yeah, that's impressive. At the same time as all this was going on, Mills and Boone was struggling to keep up with the demand Harlequin was placing on it, and their own sales were flagging. In an effort to maintain relevancy, Mills and Boone sold to Harlequin completely in 1971. So did I understand totally, like, Mills and Boone started Harlequin, and then Mills and Boone's ended selling themselves to Harlequin? Mm-hmm. This is a common theme with Harlequin. So crazy. So basically, Mills and Boone started, then yeah. Harlequin started, and yeah. Harlequin's like, hey, can we reprint some mm-hmm. of your romances? And Mills and Boone's like, yeah, sure. And then a couple years later, they're like, hey, Mills and Boone, we see you're mm-hmm. struggling. Can we buy you? And then we'll just keep reprinting yeah. your stuff. And Mills and Boone's like, yeah, oh my God, thank you. I just wanted to be sure I understood that. Because yeah. it does... It doesn't totally make sense, but it also really makes a lot of sense. When you it's do business. Yeah. Like, nah, mm-hmm. I don't know. But basically, just keep in mind that at this time... Through the 70s, Mills and Boone romances were still the only romances that Harlequin was printing. Mm -hmm. So Mills and Boone was almost more like an author warehouse, I guess you could say. They were the ones producing the book. And then Harlequin was the one printing it and publishing it in the American and North American market. Okay. Okay. Cool. So good question because this leads us right into the 80s and the turf wars of the category of romance world one of the articles i read compared it to a pirate battle and i was oh, like wow <laughs> i love romance readers <laughs> harlequin in the late 70s thanks to a part in part to its massive success grew a little too big for its britches got a little cocky they were continuing <laughs> to publish their mills and boone acquired romance authors mm-hmm. and didn't bother to chase down or acquire any american authors Including Queen Nora Ooh, Roberts. Oh, yeah, because if you guys were lucky enough to come to our Nora Roberts Month at Book Club, yeah. we know Nora Roberts started in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she even mm-hmm. has a rejection letter from Harlequin. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they're yeah. kicking themselves now. Yeah, I bet you they really hate themselves for that. However, they really shot themselves in the foot in 1976 when they split from Simon and Schuster schuster's pocketbooks who had been harlequin's distributor below the 49th parallel because remember harlequin was still based in toronto so simon and schuster was their like american Mm. company partner simon and schuster no doubt bitter but emboldened took the sales force they'd built up selling harlequins and launched their own romance imprint company silhouette books in 1980 
They ran their own marketing ads, which included television ads with Ricardo Montalban and sometimes even print ads print ads that directly faced Harlequin's own print ads. So on one side of the spread, you would have Harlequin. Mm-hmm. On the other side, you would have Silhouette. Oh, okay. So they're literally like literally facing, basically. like staring each mm-hmm. other down. Other publishers were also stepping up to the plate with their own category romance lines in an effort to ride Harlequin's coattails, such as Dell with Candlelight hey, Ecstasy, we know that one. yeah, Berkeley with Second Chance at Love, Bantam with Circle of Love, and Fawcett with Coventry Romance. Mm. Where these publishers were really killing it, though, was the fact that they were publishing American authors. Mm. Nora Roberts, Janet Daly, Linda Howard, Sandra Brown, and my favorite, Elizabeth Lowell. She was the one who got me into romance. Fun fact. All got their starts doing category romance and remain amazingly successful authors to this day. Well, sort of. Janet Daly's dead. Oh, well, she's her books are still successful. Yeah, her gross writer's doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Just looking at that list and, like, we have read all of these authors. Yeah. It's pretty wild that it's only the 80s. Like Sandra Brown, Elizabeth Lowell, and Nora Roberts were the first Mm -hmm. three romance authors I ever read. Yeah, I loved Linda Howard for a really long time. And just Sandra Brown, I would like sneak her books out of the library and still here. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Obviously, Nora. And not to mention that bodice rippers were also becoming increasingly popular with their feistier heroines and steamier tales and exotic locales. I might do an episode. I know. Here's just a thought. I had like an episode on doing like bodice rippers as a lost genre. That could be kind of interesting because I feel like, you like I know people kind of say bodice stripper today as like a joke uh-huh, or whatever, uh-huh, yeah. but it feels like the bodice stripper really does need that kind of non-consent yeah. to it. Yeah, you know, like you have to like physically rip her bodice off her to get to yeah. her. Yeah, um, and there's just like this physicality yeah. that's missing and in mainstream. Yeah, yeah, I do think it's shifted. Yeah. That could, we can think of like, hey, yeah. let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Romantics. If you're interested in that, let us know. Yeah. But I'm going to quote Nora Roberts on this because Queen Nora obviously has the best words of anybody. So, when Silhouette opened in 1980, looking specifically for new American writers to tip at the Harlequin format a bit, it opened a new era for romance and offered an entire generation of writers a chance. Silhouette took the Harlequin framework, the constants such as the one-man, one-woman love story, the sexual tension, the emotional commitment, the conflict and happy ending, then let its new and American-based writers give it all a modern and very American spin. This is the primary reason, I believe, that category romance in the entire romance market has grown and evolved over the years. The American market was poised for the change, for stronger heroines, less domineering heroes, for more contemporary themes. For myself as many and many of the writers who started during the early 80s, we were readers of the genre first. We knew what we wanted to read, so we wrote what appealed to us, and it worked. Mm-hmm. Mic drop. Boom. Go Queen Nora. Okay. With the market, however, becoming saturated, the 80s and 90s were the best times for category and genre romance. Like, this was the heyday of traditionally published romance, in my personal opinion. Diversification continued across the board for category romance, and we even begin seeing the first shades of paranormal and romantic suspense make Mm -hmm. a splash. Computers further aided this as catalogers, such as Walden Books, were able to start classifying bestseller lists using trackable computer data from across the country and, indeed, internationally. Librarians and booksellers, we love data. Like, give us a spreadsheet. I love a spreadsheet. And seeing what categories were performing well empirically without waiting for consumer feedback was revolutionary. The publishers, thanks to the computer data being provided immediately upon quarterly sales, could see who was buying what and where and were able to tune their sales, marketing, and even acquisitions to reflect these market trends. In other words, capitalism, baby! 
even with all that market competition, in the 90s, Harlequin still retained an 85% share of the romance game. And they began to grow internationally. With the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, Harlequin employees gave away more than 720,000 books at border checkpoints across the Eastern Bloc. Wow. In 1991, they sold 7 million romance wait, novels wait, wait, in wait, Hungary. Wait, go back to it. What okay. kind of books are you giving at the Berlin Wall? Western romance. Revolutionary. Well, Yeah, that's what I mean. It's just like... Uh, forbidden romance between like an East Berliner and a German. I think like, that they were just taking all their books and just whatever book they wanted. Except maybe the Amish. I don't know what the Amish <laughs> market is Amish like is in Germany. I mean, I mean, hey. Well, Beverly Lewis the didn't start until like 98. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. But Probably not Amish. But yeah. I mean, you know, the Amish came from Germany. So exactly. They, had, like, <laughs> they did. So it's like, welcome back to our homeland. In 1991, they sold 7 million romance novels in Hungary alone mm. and reached $10 million in sales in the Czech Republic in 1992. By 1995, it had released 550,000 copies of its title in Mandarin Chinese, paving the way for the opening of offices across the world from Tokyo to Mumbai. So then why did they have such a problem, like, trying to get, uh, like, different races of authors? Like, so are they just selling white romance to, mm-hmm. like, Chinese? Mm-hmm. They didn't think to get Chinese authors? Mm-mm. Okay. All right. So they're not that great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I I didn't look into the authors that they had today because this episode was already getting kind of long. But, um... They do have a statement about diversity on their website, which reads really well. Um, And they do have, of course, lines that are aimed at marginalized authors. So Mm -hmm. black, Latina, um, LGBTQIA plus like they have all those authors they invite in. Mm -hmm. But they are still primarily primarily publishing Western authors and then reprinting those in other languages. Okay, I don't know if they have. Like books that don't sell in the West that mm-hmm. are sold in like Tokyo and Mumbai that mm-hmm. are these local authors or local those countries authors. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure about that. If okay. anybody knows, let me know. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find anything on the line. So on the line online. I don't know, I'm just trying to picture people in China caring about oh, young single girl trying to make it in New York City. Like, yeah, but know, who would like, have thought that manga would have been so popular over here? I guess. Yeah, I guess we do trade stuff back and forth. Yeah. I don't know. I just still think, like, you could have just gotten Chinese authors. Yeah. But I guess it was cheaper to just use Western stuff if yeah. it's popular. Plus, I mean, if you're looking at it from, like, mm, an author contract, yeah. um, you have these Western authors who you know are going to sell in America, and then you can purchase foreign rights for these authors mm-hmm. versus trying to go and purchase these other foreign yeah. rights from other foreign authors and then bring them into America. Okay, sure. If we're going, like, from a capitalism standpoint. Yeah. If we're, like rationalizing like ceos here <laughs> there's sure. no rationalizing but that's that's my take on it okay um if the ceo of harlequin is listening hey let us know <laughs> if you want to be on the podcast <laughs> the 90s saw further expansion with the creation of mira um, which was harlequin's answer to their long-standing author program problem author problem Mira is Harlequin's mainstream commercial fiction imprint and offers readers thrillers, suspense, small town, paranormal, and more complex involved romances than the usual 200-page category does. Likewise, in addition to acquiring existing authors from other publishing houses, Mira allowed the publisher to li- the opportunity to lift authors who had been working under Harlequin's category romance lines and give them the opportunity to expand their work within the trade program. And trade is trade romance for those who aren't in the publishing know-how and interestingly enough nora roberts does write with mira okay a reprints through mira yeah. like mm-hmm. she's reprinting some of her old 80s stuff which yeah. i find really amusing she's like you wouldn't take me in the 80s take me now <laughs> okay final push here folks 
Many naysayers will point to the late aughts and early teens as the death knell for Harlequin with a vast growth of e-readers and indie pubs. When Fifty Shades debuted in 2012, James had more total sales herself than Harlequin's entire North America division. Likewise, Nook debuted in 2009 as retail giant Barnes & Nobles pushed into the market. And Amazon debuted Kindle in 2007, then their own exclusive e-publisher Kindle Unlimited in 2014. We talked about it in our Fifty Shades episode, but the advent of e-readers really helped push for steamier, sexier romances to be published and consumed. Fifty Shades, of course, but more recently with Ice Planet Barbarians, Monster, and even earlier with BDSM and similar themes. Harlequin has attempted to keep up, and they do sell ebook versions. I don't think they would be relevant if they didn't. Um, and they do sell racier titles oh, with Karina Press. That's where Karina Press comes yeah. from. Okay. But where Harlequin truly remains relevant is through their Inspire line, which the devotional readers love, mm. and through their foreign sales. Okay. <clears throat> Currently, Harlequin has offices in 16 countries, and 40% of its revenue comes from books published in languages other than English. Many foreign titles are actually translations of Harlequin's voluminous backlist, which we oh. said earlier. Um, and this is really what drew publishing supergiant Harper Collins to purchase Harlequin in 2014. So are, when you say backlist, are they mm -hmm. publishing stuff from like the 90s? Mm -hmm. to, wow. That's what I just said about Nora, how she's reprinting. Yeah, I guess I just didn't think like the 90s would still be applicable and interesting yeah. to people tonight. Like, do they sell it as retro or are they just like, oh, no, this is brand no, new they, stuff. No, they sell it as brand new stuff, which is great when you have patrons who come in and they're like, this book is brand new, Nora Roberts. I want it. And I'm like, this was published in 1997. Mm. But they're giving it like. They're the not changing any of the content. Like, they're yeah, just giving it new. Yeah, new cover, brush up. A lot of the times what they're doing, in my experience, buying these is that they are taking two two of these shorter stories and putting them in one. Mm. And especially, like, how she used to do, like, the family sagas. Yeah. And they were, like, four books. So she'd so do the first another. two in one and the second two yeah. in another one. Yeah. And then okay. they just give it pretty new covers. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Fun times. Capitalism. Um, as of 2014... 99% of HarperCollins' revenue came from English language markets. And with Harlequin struggling somewhat to keep up with Azan and other indie imprints at the rate at which they were publishing and selling their ebooks, HarperCollins' mothership news corporation saw the best opportunity to expand their own range into those foreign markets. They acquired Harlequin for a cool $415 million. Wow. Since 2014, Harlequin is still publishing under HarperCollins. They still have a whole bunch of category lines, and they're still relevant. Though there are questions about how they'll be able to continue onwards with the current rate of ebook and indie publishing. And before we get to the final question, I do still want to mention HarperCollins is still in trade negotiations. There is still a strike against HarperCollins. Um, so if you would like to support your favorite HarperCollins authors, you can go um, search HarperCollins Union Strike and get some more information on that one. Because it is very important and the workers at HarperCollins deserve fair wages. Anyways, let's go back to Harlequin. Um... There were no real takes I could find. So, Jen, I want to ask you, do you think Harlequin will be able to continue its 60-year streak and stay relevant in the world of digital screens and self-publishing? I don't know. I really struggle thinking if they will. I mean, because I feel like the appeal, at least for me, was coming across them and mm -hmm. like coming upon them. And I have to say, even though I read like insane things on Amazon <laughs> Unlimited, Amen. I've never looked for like a Harlequin like I have no idea if the kind of things that I've been like lovingly again lovingly <laughs> making fun of with the you know the Spanish billionaire's horse girl wife whatever <laughs> I don't know if they still print that even or if I'm just reading like 2000s copies of that stuff yeah you know if people are still going that far. I mean we did talk with um 
last spring we talked with those indie authors and one of them had just signed yeah, with, with Harlequin. With Harlequin. So I guess they must still be doing it, but I it's a, I wish we had asked her now about how she was actually like approached she, yeah. or how she found it. I don't know. I don't know. I wish we had answers. I feel dumb right now. But yeah. you know, I remember like I guess the little books are still kind of popular cuz like those James Patterson's bookshops still go out and he does have like romance specific ones this is true i withdrew all of them from north syracuse I know, because patterson like, they're still coming out they are oh, I, I thought, thought he was so. done oh i didn't know that i thought he, like i saw them in the grocery store i thought no maybe like my idea of time is real messed up <laughs> also it's, it's like, hard to know like what are they reprinting yeah. what's new like again if they're primarily reprinting their backlist i think if they do like the more the the longer kind of normal trade things i want to say so like i know gina showalter did harlequin for a really long time and i know like linda howard is still doing harlequin and like things like that or like laurie foster i used to read a lot of laurie foster and she published under harlequin i think like those larger imprint titles but like those little tiny paperbacks you used to pick up in the grocery store yeah i don't know like the blazes the um the intrigues the stuff I would the just historicals, grab in Walmart. Yeah, yeah, I have no idea. I was just scrolling through the website and trying to see like mm-hmm. how they were marketing everything, and it was always like subscribing at two yeah. free ebooks, like ebook FAQs. You know, maybe if I wasn't so obsessed with Kindle Unlimited, yeah. maybe I would be doing some kind of Harlequin thing. Maybe it is just like you're on one side of the fence. Plus, they have their own platform that you yeah. have to download and get on. So it's called Glose, G L O S E, which again. Jen and I are Kindle Unlimited people, so this is probably us just being really lazy. And we're like, Ugh, another platform yeah. you have to download. I think that is some, where some of these companies are kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Because yeah. there's, there's only so many platforms I'm willing to learn. It's like Amazon sign up for. and Nook I like because, and Apple Books, because you can get all these different publishers. Mm-hmm. And like you can get exclusive yeah. publishers, like Amazon is obviously Kindle Unlimited, but you can get all these other mm-hmm. ebooks on there too. Versus like with Harlequin, their their platform, you can only get Harlequin. Yeah. So I, I just, I feel like that's not very market savvy. Like it's market savvy in that it's one place for <laughs> them and that's the only place you can get yeah, them as ebooks. But, uh, they do so much though. Like they are a bit, like remember they had that NASCAR line? Yeah. Like, I actually really, read about that. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> that was a partnership with NASCAR. Yeah. I mean, between like those kind of opportunities and then also having just such a huge range between devotionals to like the spicier blazes, they do have a lot of options. Just for me, I guess it's not a part of my day to day, and maybe that's where they're missing something. Where I'm not seeing it in the stores, I'm not seeing it on Amazon or on my phone, or I'm not seeing any way to even like. They aren't in Kotex anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like that's why I was kind of like, maybe that is the only way to come across them. Maybe they do need to be on my grocery soap or something. Yeah. So I remember. Oh, hey, there's this book here. That's a good point. Is that we're not seeing them like the readers, the buyers were yeah. back in the day. But to be fair, maybe we're not the audience. Yeah. Since we are Kindle Unlimited, we're younger. We're not really doing a lot of the physical stuff as much. Yeah. So I don't know. I wish I had a good answer. I feel like we're not being very good uh, romance nerdettes. But Here's I an just, idea. I they partner again with libraries and they send yeah. us their books. Yeah, I'll put the books up. Yeah. I would happily take those to the concerts on the pop-up. Yeah. Get people talking. I would talk about them with Memoir Book Club. Like, obviously, <laughs> we can't sell anything, but at yeah. least we would have, like, entire collections versus the sporadic ones I do get mm-hmm. that, you know, die after a year. <laughs> yeah. And because they came out so frequently, too, it was hard to justify buying them. Yeah. Because it's like you get a new one every month. And also expansive series. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Maybe sell box sets. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah. You could binge. 
So I don't Binge know. Binge a Harlequin. I, I feel like we're dumb and we don't have any answers because yeah. I, I never <laughs> thought of a world without Harlequin. It's kind of sad. Yeah. I feel like it's pervasive enough and they are so popular yeah. in foreign markets that they will continue. And they do have authors. Again, they do provide these places where authors can get foot in the door. And it's such a hard industry to get a foot in the door with. I think it's going to be one of those things where the idea of Harlequin and kind of the impact. Yeah society societal wise will last much longer than the books yeah so kind of like the ideas we have about romance because of harlequin yeah that's gonna be i think what sticks with us yeah because that doesn't seem to be going away too much <sighs> unfortunately and like it was it it's like the bodice stripper and how yeah. we said this is like a lost genre of is harlequin gonna become a lost genre a lost moment of this was the category romance and this was what pushed romance yeah. to be what it is today and how we can have so many dif- different category lines of romance. So I don't know. Neither do I. I guess I'm not smart enough to have an answer. I do have a question for you though. Okay. If you were a Harlequin title, what would you be? Oh God. Okay. 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 I have the perfect one. I would want to be the Gaelic billionaire's personal librarian baker. Right? That's perfect. But, but I would want the story to end with him becoming my house husband so I don't have to clean. <laughs> okay. And we can just talk about uh, cleaning while drowning the whole time. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the taciturn ranchers, chicken lady, librarian, <laughs> farmer. <laughs> Listen, I've become the lady at parties that will tell stories about her chickens. Oh, yeah. So you parties. missed that, by the way. Everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. It does not have to be a party. Chickens are entertaining. If mm. I ever write an autobiography, it's going to be called Watching Chickens. Beautiful. Because it's so entertaining. Mm-hmm. It should be like chick watching or something. Chick watching. Yeah. That'd be a great pun. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. In here. What is your Harlequin title, dear romance nerd? Let us know. Let us know what you think about Harlequin yeah. going forward and ebooks mm-hmm. and versus Amazon. And I don't know. I watched Wally last night. And now all I can think about is like buy and large. Have you ever seen Wally? No. Oh, okay. Well, Sorry. there's a giant corporation who owns everything and mm-hmm. basically destroys the world. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> but um, thank you as always for listening. Jen, what are we talking about next time? I think you know. I have no idea. Okay. I never know. So, like we proved today, though, we do take listeners' recommendations. So, if you have something you want me to talk about or Jackie to talk about or any questions in your beautiful little romance nerd minds, yes. please email us at ragingromantics at noble.org. Otherwise, I will just go home and stare at a blank wall and think about what I want to talk about. No, you're no going to clean because you got inspired to clean. That's true. I got to find something else to clean. <laughs> so, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, I'll think while I'm cleaning and maybe <laughs> something brilliant will come into my head. They'll probably Perfect. not. Yeah, I don't know. It's March. March. Like, does anything special happen in March? St. Patrick's Day. I don't want to do St. Patrick's Like, green romance. Like, I don't know. Environmental romance. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. I can't tie it in like that. Oh. It'll just be a surprise. So All right. come back first week of the month for, I don't know, whatever popped into <laughs> Jen's head. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks, as always, for listening through our many rambles. And, Jen, what do we always say? Rejoice! Bye, guys. <laughs>